Roop Roop, everybody. It's Marooned on Mars. Oh, Matt and Hillary. Roop Roop, Rip Rip, Click is... Hey, you know what? He served his purpose, didn't he, folks? Oh, boy. All right. Um, it's Matt and Hillary. It's Marooned on Mars. Um, it's the Kim Stanley Robinson podcast. You know what it is. We're talking about shaman. We are talking about shaman. Shaman. <laughs> Uh, shaman if you're in the Midwest, shaman if you're a <laughs> California expatriate. Yeah, depending on depending on what school of uh, nature magic you subscribe to. Um, yeah, uh, we're we're talking, and we're gonna again like last time we just talked about one chapter, and again this time we're gonna just talk about one chapter, the one called Hunted. Right. Yeah, because a lot a lot goes on in it. There's a lot to to talk about we have to mourn we have to properly mourn click um and um and and curse bad leg yeah bad leg man not a good leg not <laughs> i don't like bad leg it really like there is something those those descriptions of like particularly the slight crunch every in his ankle every time he puts his foot down they are such visceral descriptions of having an improperly healed injury that you have to like keep uh using for things I just oh my god i i think that <clears throat> that's as we were talking before we just started recording so this this chapter is obviously the the four of the uh the click and thorn have rescued uh loon and elga from the captivity of the northern northern jende people and um they're on the run. And then of course, Loon is like severely injured from his shaman wandering. And that, that injury becomes massively aggravated and gets worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. uh, but then eventually they, they make it back to the camp is the, is the long and short of the, of the plot of the story. But one of the things I wanted to bring up was, um, and like um, uh, Loon's like persistent injury that will clearly be with him for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. Uh, is a window to this is the status of this book in relation to the concept of utopia mm. like this is not you know we, because especially in as, as the book starts and as we started on our first episode talking about how much abundance there is in this world I mean it's a hard world to live in you have to like think about how much food to store for the winter and stuff but it's a world. It's a world that provides that finds. That there's like loads of stuff in the world to eat and to fashion lots of things with, fancy clothes, all kinds of stuff. But at the same time, this is not a. We would not call this a utopia. Like we would not call this a world that we want to go toward or go back to. And this chapter really, I felt, drives that home in a lot of ways. Like. You don't, we do not want to give up modern medicine. We don't want to give up like 
advanced technology that prevents us from like freezing to death or like right, right. suffering from the effects of a like a sprained ankle that we experienced when we were 12 years old and our uncle sent us out to live in the woods for two weeks naked right <laughs> that's not something that we want to like this kind of utopian primitivism this primitive utopianism that kind of that show alone that you mentioned sort of seems to maybe like at least not promote but suggest is possible that's not a world that we want to like have to like resort to or something like that. Right. I mean, I think that the, um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to think about here. I mean, I guess I would say that generally like, um, I don't think utopia has to be like, right. um, a place that you want to live in anyway. Right. Um, but more like, um, the creation of a relation to, um, uh, a way of living that is substantively different and that we can think of or use in order to think about what would, what would or could be better in the way that we live. Um, I mean, and I, you know, I don't think it would be right. I mean, I agree with you. I think that this is not a, um, uh, this is definitely not a book that's interested in sort of like romanticizing the primitive or suggest, you know, with quote, with quotation marks around, around that, or like, um, suggesting that like, what we need is to like make a return. I mean, the return is clearly impossible, um, which is actually kind of an interesting thing to think about in this. If we like, um, if we pull back, I mean, this is such an absorbing book and it does, like we talked about this last time that, um, although, uh, it's more overall more leisurely than this. Like it does have um, a certain kind of just like adventure story structure, right? From the rite of passage story to the like, you know, period of like, you know, adolescent discomfort to the crisis of Elga being kidnapped and then um, Loon also being kidnapped right here, the second kind of uh, you know, the escape, right? I mean, like the, you know, so it has a sort of um, adventure or even like a romance, like not like romance novel, but like um, classical romance kind of quality to it. Um, but it's interesting to think about this, if we thought about this chapter um, uh, also as a passage between worlds chapter, right? Um, you know, as, as, um, Loon experiences on his wander that that is also in a more condensed way a kind of a passage between worlds um and here here again like we're seeing a sort of passage between worlds and in the in a way that I think um uh you know often in Stan's novels um you know we see a sort of like a transitional period that is a period of like um extreme physical testing right you know I mean this I think is something that he like uh takes from like certain kinds of like adventure stories or mountain climbing stories or you know um and and certain kinds of like science science fiction stories too right um so we have a kind of like so this chapter is like a kind of extended transitional chapter which I think is really very interesting I mean to me the thing that the that I think that this book keeps um keeps doing even in this section I'm just thinking about what you were saying about like um you know we wouldn't want to live without like modern medicine or whatever um 
I think even here, if we think about how Loon is somebody who has, um, you know, on his on his wander, um, he becomes disabled, but only but temporarily disabled, and then it really is a sort of like it's just like a kind of debility, you know, like he's able to do a lot with the leg, um, but the extremity of what happens in this chapter, like he is like fully disabled by the end of this chapter. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, I think it's kind of interesting to think about that, like the experience of that for him in comparison to like what it looks like to, um, you know, uh, get the kind of like workplace injury that either like is debilitating, but isn't fully recognized by like workers comp or whatever, um, or like actually like puts you out of the workforce and then sort of like, um, you know, keeps you trapped in a position where you only have like the very low level resources of like the, the financial support that you get. Um, you know, like the, the loon, like, and Thorne, who's, you know, so old, <laughs> And right. Elga, who is a woman, mm-hmm. um, that everybody like um, makes everybody except for Click makes <laughs> it through this journey and this period of physical extremity, and that's actually something that like they know how to do. And this is not, I, I think, like not about like being in touch with their bodies, but like not having the kind of like lives that are about like daily grinding just they aren't about slow death, right? They don't live slow death lives, right? Um, they are in a position where they could, fast death is like, you know, all around them. Um, but also I'm just thinking about that, like, sorry, I'm talking too long here, but- that, No, no, I, this is good, this is good. I'm thinking about that, like the third, the idea of the third wind, you know, I mean, first of all, like I think in this chapter, the getting a second wind is conveyed so beautifully. And like, it reminds me, you know, as I'm often reminded, like um, when we're talking about these books, like how good I, how good Stan is at writing about bodies and what mm, it feel, yeah. what it feels like, not in a like glorifying way, I mm-hmm. think, but but in a very like um, uh, just like in a very like deep way, what it feels like to push through something or to do something that you don't feel that you're able to do, or what it feels like when that state comes on where you are like, yeah, I can keep going. I can keep going, you know, the long hike. Right. Um, uh, but it, then also thinking about the third wind as this kind of like, um, that seems to capture a sort of like bodily being in the world that feels like, uh, it feels like something that like we, if, if, if there is that possibility under our modern lives under capital, it's something that can only be produced by like really like reaching for it as opposed to kind of like part of the inhabitation of your body and your life. So I guess all of this is a way of saying like, I think that we have, even in this chapter, which is about um, extremity and depletion and like they're all so thin at the end um, and, and about death too, like even in this chapter, like we get some chances to think about um, modes of being, um, being in relation to the natural world, which continues to be like beautiful and wild. You know, we get these like very wild visions of what the world looks like. Uh, 
that I think have to me anyway have a kind of utopian quality not in the like we should go back and live like that but in a sort of anticipatory of like we could we could live differently right than the sort of debilitated state um that is life under capital for like you know the proletarians. Basically. I mean, I think that's very clarifying to me in terms of when you describe utopia as a relationship to a mode of being in the world or, or uh, a set of relations to a ways of living that are substantially different, right? Like, and also the fact that, you know, obviously we, and that, and that utopia as a like literary project, you know, allows you to see glimpses of things that you, you know, not, you don't have to actually take the whole package necessarily, but there are (laughs) elements here. And I think the third wind is really interesting as you were describing it, um, particularly in the relationship that we have to life under capital and the capitalist state, especially because, you know, you could draw the comparison to what they go through here to what we're going through now under, under lockdown where, Mm -hmm. A lot of us are, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm lucky enough not to have to be working right now. My partner has a job where she can provide for both of us. And that also she is not in like direct exposure to any, like, you know, uh, she's, she's well taken care of basically as a, as a, as a, as a professor, as a, as a culture worker, as an intellectual worker. Right. So we're lucky in that regard. But I think there's a lot of people who are still very well fed. Like that's why the stupid country is opening back up the Mm. economy is that the people in power are in this kind of well-fed state. But all of that is to say, to to, to, um, prelude to the fact that, you know, what happens when we enter this moment of extremity uh, under the kind of modern state, uh, the capitalist state or any kind of modern state apparatus is that we don't even know what this third wind would look like. I think it's kind mm-hmm. of like you look to the government or whatever, like, well, what are we supposed to do? It's part of that kind of um, radical de-skilling uh, that, uh, that follows on the kind of uh, imposition of the state in the earliest states in that James C. Scott book that we were talking about where... Um, you know, the, the kind of breakdown of just simple social relations and um, knowledge of yourself that has been kind of commandeered by um, modern um, epistemologies and uh, training regimes, mm-hmm. education regimes, mm-hmm. that's all just taken away so that you are kind of left with this kind of, well, wh- you know, what's the government say- or what is some other force telling me when who's going to come and save me rather than having some knowledge that there's a third wind or that you have, you know, a, a social social relations that actually um, bind you that 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 keep you secure. Right. Um, that don't um, that that keep you from being free in the negative sense that capitalism makes us free from ourselves. Not just our labor is free to sell, but that we're actually free from the bonds of society and free free in terms of like twisting in the wind, like no right. security at all. Right, only under the community of capital. Right. Yeah, I mean that's I think that that's interesting because the. Um, uh, two things I was just thinking about from this chapter, just like little moments. Um, one, when the, um, 
they're crossing one river when and and thorn sings the like ice breakup song and does the dance and it doesn't break up um but then when they cross the big the big river and then it does break up and there's a really amazing image of how black the river that it's like shocking to see its blackness against all of the white of the ice and the snow but they stand on the bank of the river and we've already seen like the wolf pack do this earlier they stand on the bank of the river and they howl um and like um you know it's this moment i mean they i mean like part of it is like okay this actually is the thing that it ensures that they're going to get away from the gende because like um they're not going to be able to cross that river uh uh but part of it is just this moment of like, um, uh, you know, shared expressiveness mm -hmm. um, in in relation to something that is like huge and more powerful than you, but that, but it, but not like oppressing you. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, like nature, obviously, like um, to the extent that. Um, it can feel like it stands outside of us like Gaia or whatever, like come fuck us up. But like, it's not, you know, um, oppressing us. It's right. not like the state, right? So that moment of like sp spontaneity there when they respond, I think is a really beautiful moment, right? And also this moment of like, you know, um, you know, standing in the place of like the human, the human animal and just like, right, celebrating. And then, um I think the at some point in the chapter after bad leg has gotten really bad um and uh Thorne asks Click if he'll carry Loon and um uh there's a great description of um maybe I can find this yeah on 326 um uh just this amazing description click got it and his bushy eyebrows lifted his forehead into four distinct furrows in the shadows of the moonlight his beaky nose and big brow and wrinkled forehead and bristly little chin resembled one of the wooden masks the western packs carved expressing one feeling or another in this case surprise he looked loon up and down as if weighing him everyone had had to carry something big from time to time a deer a child a mammoth head a hurt friend, a log for the fire. So everyone knew it wasn't an easy thing, couldn't be done for long, and it was night, and they'd been going for three days and nights without a pause. Then Click's mask of a face shifted as if wood were shifting, the mask settling into a new expression, resolve. It was a more than human look, like Thorn on a spirit voyage. S, he said. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the line that struck me there, and then I was thinking like, and then it, toward the end, later on in this sequence like elga has to pull loon and clicks frozen corpse mm -hmm. <laughs> loon atop clicks frozen corpse um and she pulls in this way that makes uh is the kind of the first time that loon notices that she must be herself from the snow because of the way that she's able to walk through the snow it's mm -hmm. you know he kind of he sees something in her there but but i I keep thinking about that line, like everybody had had to carry something big from time to time, a deer, a child, a mammoth head, a hurt friend, a log for the fire. Everyone knew it wasn't an easy thing. And there is this moment of like, you know, um, when like tasks and work 
are shared and like um, things are done according to people's needs, you know, and effort is given according to, to need, um, uh, not according to like the demands of like commodity production, right? Um, there's this sense there of like, yeah, there's this like really fundamental communal knowledge. Everybody's had to do something like this, you know. Right. Um, Elga is a woman and clearly in Loon's mind, like women aren't supposed to be able to run endlessly and pull things. But like, you know, she turns out to be like as strong as they are and like, you know, is able to pull. Click is like practically like another kind of creature in this moment, you know, uh, and yet, you know, takes it on. So something about that way in which like there just is this kind of like you know, this is something everybody knows how to do. Like when it's the time to bear things, people know how to bear things. And something mm -hmm. like that like connects to me to what you were just saying about like, you know, one of the experiences that we've had under the like isolation of COVID has been like, um, you know, just how divided up we are in a way that keeps us from being able to bear things together. Like, I just think the idea of like the essential worker is like a good way to think about that. You know, yeah. those essential workers like defined in all kinds of ways are people who have ended up bearing a great deal like for the rest of us. Right. You know? um, but not because like we have a community not because we have a collective, not because we have a sense of like, you know, commitment to one another but because like they're gonna fucking lose their jobs if they don't go you know yeah, because of a, a job <clears throat> you don't eat right because of class society and not and all because also not because of any unique capacities that they have or unique capacities that we have that essential workers have or unique capacities that quote unquote inessential workers have right right but because there's just a class society we've decided these people for whatever reason because of their nation of origin or the color of their skin or their educational attainment um you're the ones who have to bear the brunt of this right and there's no even mention in official circles of a reorganization of society to redistribute that necessary labor in a more equitable way that would keep people safe um and that would be completely feasible and would probably make a lot of people a lot happier yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> and connect right. us socially in ways in a way that we would you know hold in common more experiences like stocking shelves or um cleaning up garbage or whatever it is right right right, right. yeah i mean i'm very like this is obviously like a detour but like I, I got to say, like, going to the United Center, named after United Airlines, and into the Uber <laughs> tent to be vaccinated of Pfizer vaccine by a member of the National Guard. And like, you know, and I get why people like sort of posted things on Twitter that were like, it's great to see the state is functioning, you know, imagine like if the state could do more of these things, but I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not like super excited about like that uh, idea of like that we need to be taken care of by like um, that kind of organization but also it was just like really I'm at the United Center in the Uber tent getting a Pfizer vaccine from like you know this like 19 year old who had like 15 minutes of field medic training and camp yeah. in the band-aid I mean like no you know 
no, no offense to him. No offense to that guy who was like perfectly fine. It was just like, uh, oh, and also like the whole place is staffed by, I mean, so there are like, you know, hundreds of like National Guard people there. But then also the whole place is staffed by people who have obviously been hired on a temp basis to right. do this, who are like cleaning and sweeping and directing people and like making sure that everybody has the printout of their QR code from their event ticket. I mean, you know, uh, you know what I'm saying here. Like, Yeah, what we need to do is <laughs> like just these, the, you know, it advertising executives and people who do advertising that whole industry should just be abolished oh, and they yes. should just be easy, all easy call <laughs> just and also most lawyers and like patent attorneys especially copyright attorneys mm -hmm. abolish that whole field all those people could just go and work in some of these essential services areas cut everybody's hours in half or or by some proportion and then just you know um not do not make commercials for the military, for example, yeah, for example. Uh, that air during sporting events, <laughs> uh, not, <laughs> not argue for Pfizer's intellectual property rights uh, against the ability against like uh, the, the, the need of the, of Africa, for example, just to take one small example mm -hmm. to be vaccinated mm -hmm. as rapidly as possible or India for God's right. sakes. Right. Oh um, my God. On a, I had prospective student, uh meetings this week for my the program that I run and uh the program the program and I talked obviously over zoom and I talked to like um a number of people in other countries and uh I talked to several people in various places in South and East Asia and the people in South Asia particularly were like yeah, so another thing that I'm kind of worried about is I get that you have the vaccine there, but, and I was just like, Jesus Christ, you know, this is so completely fucked up. Like, I mean, and these are like, obviously like middle-class, probably like upper middle-class to wealthy people. Absolutely. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's these things that make me skeptical about a, a good Anthropocene. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, we're talking about shaman. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We are. Well, we are. so to just to get back to, to shaman and 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 a little just not a not very far after when click carries loon for a little while. Um, you know, so they're on the run from these Jende people who are really good on snow and ice, and that and loon at one point tells Thorn, you're not gonna trick them on ice. They're better that on ice than anybody. They've also got wolves or domesticated dogs. Uh, to help in the chase. Um, and what's a kind of a funny thing that happens is that they are momentarily, they're, they are saved or they're um, given slight respite uh, in their, um, in their uh, fleeing from, in their being hunted from the Jende mm -hmm. by a giant snowstorm. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, it, like, um, Thorn will like look up at the sky and be like, oh, good. It's going to start. There's going to be a blizzard. That's good. And, you know, like us, it, us modern dopes would be like, ah, that doesn't sound good to me at all. But um, in fact, it is good <laughs> because it like covers up their tracks. Um, uh, uh, it lets them uh, have a bigger fire where the smoke will be, you know, dispersed by the by the by the wind and the snow and also on 329 
um, because there's this storm, it was going to be cold. Well, cold. He was used to it. He had been cold for months now, and he could endure more of it. The world was a cold place. One breathed and shivered and danced in place to fight it, and it was possible to endure, as long as there was food, and of course a fire would be nice. In a storm, no one would be able to see smoke from a fire. Getting one started would of course be a test. Loon grimaced, remembering his failure on the first night of his wander. But Thorn was a real fire master, like all old shamans, and he had his kit with him, the fire starter kit and block, flint knockers, bags of duff, kept dry in a dovekey dovekey skin. He could do it, and he would. So um you know ironically what you know that that they're saved uh they're given a brief respite by just this ginormous um mm. storm where they're able to like kind of sit out for a, a day or two and and just sort of get warm um which is <clears throat> again it's part of like thinking about their capacity that they have as a people and in in relation to the natural world um that uh, you know, is surprising and, you know, fundamentally different than ours. Yeah. And the, I love that the part of the, on 333, part of what they do during the storm is because they've had to flee. Elgo is not wearing, like not properly dressed. Right. And so then Thorn makes out of the robe that she's wearing, Thorn makes her like a shirt and not pants, but something else. Right. Um, uh shirt and coat um coat. out of out of just like this large what i assume is like a pretty large like shapeless fur he cuts something that's closer to her body and then a layer that goes over that so that she's like warm for the first uh for the first time um and i just like love you know uh 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 so he cuts the fur and then he punched holes around their edges with his antler all biting his lips. Then he sewed the pieces together with a length of leather cord he pulls from his sack, wound around a short stick. And again, here, like the sort of, um, you know, not having it be the case that like um, things are only known how only one person knows how to do a thing or only one category of person knows how to do a thing. Um, you know, like Thorne is perfectly good at making clothes that work and does it in this emergent does it in this emergency setting there's something about like the kind of um i mean this is actually a sad thing to think about given that um we're kind of like leading up to um the death of <laughs> the death of click but um which is really not funny but something about uh something about that is compelling me to laugh but uh <laughs> you know these like moments of care here that you know like like the pleasure that they take in the fire, you know, even though they're in this stressful situation and even though when it's snowing incredibly hard, another thing is you can't go out and find stuff to eat. And this is not a good time of year to be finding anything to eat anyway. And right. Um, but that like, you know, not the, the sort of like the sense of care that makes one person be like, um, I'm willing to carry this other person, the sense of care of like, you know, sitting around the fire and like taking the time and the energy, obviously to make new clothes for Elga so that she's going to be like warmer than she, than she was, you know, something about that is like a really lovely piece of this journey. And going along with that is when they, when at the times that they stop and make camp, um, despite Loon's like incredible disability and pain, he's still wandering around like collecting firewood and stuff. It's yeah, not like yeah. he, it's not like he just can even has it in his mind. It's not even, it doesn't even cross his mind to be like, 
finally I can sit down and rest because I am the one who's injured and I need to be not moving this leg around. Um, as soon as you start the fire, I'm just going to sit there and like relax. And it's not even in their mind to be like, loon, sit, stop moving around. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, he's part of this. Um, it, you know, his, his labor is necessary for, for them to succeed. Um, and them succeeding is him succeeding. Like there's just a complete solidarity here. It's like, um, just, yeah, like he's been able to walk all day on this bad leg anyway. Um, a few more, you know, another half out, half a fist of, um, wandering around camp, collecting firewood, isn't going to do that much more damage to it or anything like that. And it's his, it's his duty. It's his, um, responsibility to the group to help in this. Yeah. And that, that's, I mean, that's so interesting and in that it's, that's also part of the, like, I was just thinking about how there's that, there's a moment when, um, the leg is first getting really bad. And it's, I think it's after that horrible scene in which he's having to like, uh, they're, they're going down that snowy slope, which is when he really fucks his leg up because he, uh, yeah. Cause he can't, um, the way that it's going, they have to, he has to put a lot of most of the weight on the bad leg because it's sloped down hill and they're go the, the direction they're going. Right. They can't keep switching back. They have to keep, yeah. just like, they have to keep angling in one direction. Um, and then I think it's then when Thorne is like, you need two sticks right. um, and goes and cuts him another stick, like another, again, another like pause from their forward momentum to do this. And then Thorne also says something like, you know, this is what I did when I, I was on a hunting trip and I had broken my leg and I had to get home. Um, which in another context could be the kind of like, you know, you know, whatever, like manly, like you got to keep going or I suffered too, or whatever it is. But here it feels more like the sort of encouragement of like, there is a way to do this. And like, here's a tool that you can use. And like, I've tested it out just like it's important, even though, you know, there's a point at which Luna's is like, I don't think Thorne has any idea of like exactly where we're going. Like, it's still important that Thorne be able to say to everybody, I know where, <laughs> I right. know where we're going. And that like, um, you know, and so that is kind of met with the way in which like Loon just, Loon continues also to like care for himself too. Like, you know, when um, after Click dies, thinking about like maybe what's happening is that like Click's spirit is in his leg is, is actually a way that he copes with the pain and makes it manageable so that he can continue participating to the extent that he's able, right? You know, like naming it bad leg, um, like the names he gives for his hurts when he's on his wander. It's like, this is like an active way to like manage pain is to like come to that kind of awareness of it, right? And give it a place. Yeah. yeah As opposed yeah. to like being like, oh God, please let it stop, you know? Yeah, and just, yeah, like uh, just what you said, like the fact that, he, there are people who know who have been through something similar and, and can tell you as someone who's never been through something, no, I've done it. That means you can do it too. It's possible. Um, you just have to do it right. The kind yeah, that kind yeah. of like passing on of common knowledge, um, through practical experience, not yeah, because yeah. they like heard somebody else did it. It's because like, no, I lived through what you're living through or something similar and can relate. Um, 
Should we go to Click's um, demise? Yeah. Um, this occurs after they've already um, crossed the river that will protect them from the Jende, right? Like they they get across. Loon uses the skills that he learned on the ice with the Jende to lead them um, across across the ice of this river that is actively breaking up. Like they have to get across it or they're really screwed. Um, and as soon as he's across, uh, he realizes how exhausted he is and how fucked up his leg is and he has to sit down. And then the, the river breaks up um, and they're really, really relieved because it, bas it just means that um, the, the Jende are not gonna be able to catch them. Um, so that's a huge, that's like a huge moment. They're able to kind of stop, but then, um, I think it's another sort of big storm mm -hmm. and they're down to like eating leather and fur, not an appetizing meal. <laughs> Seems pretty gross. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's still snowing, snowing, snowing. And it's like the six month after a bad spring, one of the worst times for foraging a time of starvation and drowning in snow melt. Um, uh, Thorn seems to know where they are, says that he knows where they are, but like Loon is kind of like, there's no way he can know where we actually are or how close we are. Um, uh, Elga finds some like meadow onions, uh, that they're able to eat. Uh, she makes a joke with Thorn, he she's starting to grow on him, and then, uh, one morning, Thorn wakes them up and is like, hey, uh, Click's dead. And nothing preceding this indicates that Click is ailing or anything wow. like that. Like, um, So there is a heavy intimation. And I think it increases basically by the end of the book that Thorn has killed Click in the night. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it it seems it seems good to say that it it is not specified. Right. That he actually has done it, and something else could have happened. Right. Um, but just as something else could have happened, it seems equally possible that Thorn killed Click. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's I mean, I think it's heavily intimated just in the text itself. Like, Thorn, what Thorn cried? How? Why? He had not meant to say why, and the yeah. word hung there in the air like a hummingbird standing in its own flight. It could have been awkward, but Thorn was busy on his own thoughts. It did not appear to have heard him. Um, anyway, he's dead, nothing to be done. And so that, but the question of why means that Loon, in Loon's mind, at least in his like subconscious, there's a causal thing about why, why um, Click died and that causality he's directing at Thorn. It's like, not just why did he die, but why did you kill him? Yeah. Is sort of what's implied. I mean, I think personally, like for sure, Thorn killed, Thorn killed Click. Uh, that, that is also what I think happened too, uh, because I think that, I mean, so, I mean, it's interesting that it's off stage and that we don't know. And then, so, you know, uh, then they eat click a little at a time. Um, and 
I mean, and we can talk about that in more, we can discuss that in more detail, but it's interesting because then, um, you know, there is this sort of question, I mean, in some ways, like the question of whether for everything that happens after, um, including the sense of having lost their luck, which they feel, um, and ongoingly in the novel, like um, Thorns being haunted by Click, um, all of that stuff, I think, is equally explainable um, by Thorn having made the decision that they will eat Click, right? right? I mean, so it's this kind of like, it's this double violation. And like, we don't know about the killing part of it for sure, but we know that they eat him. And, you know, I I think presumably like that's a decision that um, Loon and Elga would also have come to, but it's Thorn, it's Thorn who says we have to eat him. And then it's Thorn who goes out to cut the parts of him exactly. up, which I, I take it is like a kind of, there he is in some ways like taking the, um, he's taking the violation on himself. Like he, in some ways that's him protecting Elga and Loon from the full force of the kind of violation of what they've done. But this is just like an extraordinary, like, uh, you know, whether it's just the eating or whether it's the killing and the eating, it, it's such a like violation of, of taboo, of like a really kind of central sense of, uh, taboo, I think. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, yeah, it's true. And, and like, it's, there's, it's conspicuous. It is conspicuous. There's a conspicuous absence in description of Click's body once, you know, because Thorn is, is doing the butchering off, off screen, off camera, um, off stage. Um, Although we do get when uh, we do get uh, the sort of observation of yeah um, because then in order to get around um, they essentially make Click's deep frozen body into like a sledge that Loon can lie on top of um, and mostly Elga pulls um, and uh, you know we do get the description of that sledge becoming shorter because like Thorne is removing him like removing his parts from the legs yeah uh, uh, Lump, lumpier and lumpier and uh shorter yeah well the first thing they eat is his rump which is is that is they eat his ass cheeks uh his yeah, rump is well, not that is that what rump is I, well i think so i think it's his butt i mean delicious they eat well, his butt i <laughs> famously did you ever see that movie um this is like a, I'm telling a weird uh, anecdote that is not even my anecdote, but an anecdote of my sister's. That movie Alive about the maybe like Argentinian soccer team, they're playing like crashes in the Alps. This is like a true story and then got made right. into a movie. Right. And then they, they have to eat each other. Um, right. I never saw it. Uh, once I believe when my sister was in college, she and her friends had just watched that movie and they were sitting in a diner talking about it. And a kid who was like bussing tables was listening to them talk about it. And he came over to the table and he said, did you see the part where they ate the butt? (laughs) 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 Most memorable part of any cannibalism movie, eating the butt. Anyway, um, The, um, I think that the, the, uh, I'm trying to find this place. 
Um, Thorne says it'll be uh, tough old meat. Oh yeah, on three forty-seven. So, and we get the way in which, like, um, you know, here I think we're sort of like we're loosely focalized through loon, um, and you know, when as Thorne starts cooking the meat, like they just start salivating because of course they're they're starving. Yeah. Um, and like they must be especially protein starved because I can't imagine you get a ton of protein out of eating fur or leather. Leather. Um, rancid nuts. Rancid nuts. Uh, five nuts. Uh, here's five nuts a day. Let's hike twenty miles. <laughs> I know exactly. Take that, Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> What did he eat? Like 12 almonds while like answering emails at night or something? Oh God, I don't know. There's Is this some, part of his uh, autobiography or something? There's some anecdote like told in a sort of praising way, just like about his like extraordinary self-restraint or whatever that like he would work late into the night and he'd like measure himself out like precisely like 11 almonds. Why would he do this? I have no idea. What kind of a sick fuck is he? Just have a snack, man. God damn, dude. And also go to bed. Um, Go to bed. uh, Instead, yeah. Anyway, uh, I was going to say something about droning people and then I I stopped. Uh, Good thing you stopped. But um, uh, uh, so and, and Thorne also takes the first bite and says, thank you. And I, again, I think that this is like, I mean, to some extent, it's like just a ritual. And to some extent, it is like taking the re- the burden of the responsibility onto himself. Right, right. He handed the cooked piece, this is on 347, branch and all to Elga, who thanked him and bit into it matter-of-factly as she would any other cut. I mean, Elga's going to fucking survive. That's yeah part of uh, her thing. Um, Loon's mouth was flooded with saliva and he was glad when she handed him the stick and gave him a bite. The meat tasted a bit like bear meat, very tough. It was as if Click's whole body had been made of heart muscle. Briefly, Loon's face, face spasmed and he cried, but Elga and Thorne ignored that. I mean, it's like such, I mean, it's a very brief moment, but like uh, so intense and like not... Um, you know, there's, there's like no explanation, you know, like there's no like going into like what's being suggested here, but the idea that like, you know, here they are eating someone who had a great heart is like, uh, it's a super intense upsetting moment. Well, so yeah, not only have they potentially murdered him, now they're eating him, but then they have to use him as a sled. And And then they have to use him as a sled. Ride, ride him. Like, um, Thorne's like, we have to take him with us because we need to eat. And, uh, and so, yeah, Loon and Loon like cannot walk at this point. So he just, he rides click the whole time. So it's just insult to injury piled on top of each other over and over again. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like another sort of like violation is like violating the body. And in the end, they can't even like, um, they cut, you know, what remains of the meat off of him and they leave the bones to return to later. So they don't even, they're not even, I mean, they're literally not able to, if they're going to live, right? do give him a proper, um, give him a proper like, you know, end of life ritual, which involves like arranging the bones in a particular way. But also I would say, I would bring that, mm-hmm. I, I would, um, the, I'm interested in Thorne's role here as shaman right because uh 
Yeah, they do not give him a proper burial, but he as shaman is clearly there and as their elder as well. Um, and like their de facto leader is there to give them the alibi. Like, look, this is a, like you said, like he takes the first bite. So he gives them the alibi of like, this is what we're going to do. We have to survive. And on 345, he says, we need to eat. We can find our way home when the storm is over and the snow settles, but we have to uh, have food. Um, Elga says, so we have to eat click. And Thorne's like, yes, not a deeply. Exactly. Click has been dead two days. He's frozen. So I'm going to go cut a few steaks out of him and we will then cook and eat them. It will be tough old meat, but it's all we've got. I'm sorry to do it, but Click will understand. I'm the shaman. Click will understand. I've just finished talking to him about it. And his spirit is well clear of his body by now out in the stars. He said he is happy to be still be of service. He said, thank you. Just like he always did. So it's part, partly it's the role of the shaman to make up these stories, to create this justification for violating these taboos in these like moments of extremity yeah. um, to keep at least what's, you know, because, and also like, this is a question at, that a, a, a listener emailed us about the fact that, you know, Thorne makes the decision, seems to make the decision to kill the pre-human, the non-human human, right? Uh, in service of preserving or justifying the, the continuation of modern human uh, being or whatever. Um, and that's something that's kind of, that's an interesting aspect of the book and a question that we might ask about, again, like the nature of, I guess, the human or humanity in relation to other quote unquote non-human things or this, the place that where you as a human can say, I am more important than me and these two other people are more important than this guy. Right, right. And what right. what allows Thorne to make that calculus? Like the fact that he looks different than them, doesn't speak their language, um, all of this other, that he is alone, that he doesn't have a society that's going to like avenge him, right? He doesn't have a family that's going to come looking for the wolf pack and like seek their vengeance or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, and like, we don't know whether the the line of the decision is like, well, Click exists in this kind of like intermediate space, right? In which he is sort of available to be harmed, you know, in which he's like closer here to, um, you know, I mean, because like, since uh, animals are also people and everything has a spirit and et cetera, et cetera, like, you know, the killing, what licenses you to kill an animal is that like you need to and you do it in a proper way, right? And But we don't know whether it's like because of Click's like uncertain status as human or it's because of the very certain status that um, Loon and Elga have for Thorn which is, um, and just as we don't really know, you know, Thorne decides to do this um, and we don't know whether this is like, um, I mean, it, it, it does not precisely seem to be, um, he decides to go rescue Loon, right? And it, that doesn't precisely seem to be something that accords with like the role of shaman. Like that doesn't seem to be the position from which he does this. Um, but it's not clear whether he goes after Loon um, because nobody else is doing it, um, 
whether he goes after Loon because he thinks, because Loon is his apprentice, whether he goes after Loon because he loves Loon, um, like all of these things at once. Um, but we do know that it's really only like Thorn and Heather who think it would be worth it. And the decision is like, in some ways, not a, uh, you know, it's kind of like not a pack logic decision, which should say like, um, even if we don't all agree, like a whole bunch of us think this is worthwhile. I mean, you know, been, have been, if the pack was like, we, it's, we got to get Loon back. It's worth the danger to the pack to get Loon. Like it would have worked out very differently, you know, like it wouldn't have been the same kind of like sneaking operation that Thorne had to run. Although obviously like Thorne does it extremely well too. Yeah. It's a kind of revelation. It's a revelation about about Thorne, uh, how competent he is, right? It's a dude's rock, dude's rock moment for Thorne, yeah. A dude's rock moment for Thorne. And, uh, but then also, you know, with this, like, we don't know, like, um, I mean, I think, you know, we don't know whether he is like, I'm preserving the people who are like me or whether he's like, I am preserving Loon and Elga or he's like, I'm preserving Loon because, you know, um, you know, there's another logic that would say that the person who is wounded is the most expendable person, right? Um, yeah, so, think it's like, so it's like, we don't, we don't actually know, we don't like know what motive, sort of like where the motivation lies. So there is, a, it does seem to me that like, like you were saying, like some of this is that like, click seems to be, click is open, is available to be harmed because he is not precisely a person in the way that they are people. Right. Um, but we don't know whether the line is really like a, more like a sort of like family, not family line or a human, not quite human line. I mean, it feels like it's a suite. It's all of a piece. Like it's a suite of concepts and ideas that result in this eventuality, like that, that, that result in this, that precipitate into the, it's an overdetermined decision that yeah, he makes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think it's uh, open to interpretation and debate about what the consciousness of the book is separate from Thorn or Loon's decision-making process here in terms of like what it think, what the book thinks about, you know, whether it renders a moral judgment on this or whether it thinks it's a kind of a justified thing in, pre in um, preservation of a kind of human that's identifiable in uh, separately from other um um non-homo sapiens humanoids humans right. hominins right right um uh, as distinct from you know humans um relationship to or their relationality to other animal other animal persons other non-human persons right right i mean and certainly we can see like um you know, if we leave aside the question of murder, like we see that in order to survive, um, they have to do things that cross that sort of cultural, the cultural barrier that is supposed to like keep humans humans, right? Right. That's a very like West, like a Western uh, concept. I mean, cowboys and Indians, Western. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you need the guy who's willing to do violence. I mean, it's the myth of, the organization of the state. You need the guy who's willing to do violence to the people who do violence in order to 
enact an order that is based on law rather than violence. But in so doing that act of violence, in performing that act of violence, the good guy with the gun is then therefore expelled from the community that is supposed to exist without violence, without guns, with the rule of law. And we see something like that happen eventually in the next two chapters with Thorne, not exactly, but he loses his mind. Like he actually kind of, you know, he can't stop seeing click um, near the campfire. He, he is overwhelmed with, with mm -hmm. guilt uh, or some, you know, it, click haunts him for the rest of his short life. Right, um, right. And, and kind of, you know, means that he, at least in spirit, is sort of expelled from the community of, quote unquote, of man, you know. Um, right, right. Act. Well, and it, you know, and it does like, um, you know, I think it, like there with the question of like clicks ongoing, because, because Loon also feels cl uh, click in him, right, in his leg. Um, and it's a really ambivalent presence to him, you know, he kind of doesn't know, is this just like where Click is hanging out? <laughs> is this like, um, uh, is he, um, so on 358, uh, uh, now Loon walked as much as he could on his poles, but of course Bad Leg had to do its part. There was no way around it. Whenever they were on remnants of snow in the afternoon, it still uh, helped to be on their snowshoes. And that involved bad leg no matter what. Loon just had to stride over that little click of agony. It was almost an audible click. Indeed, in the mornings when he was stiff and it was quiet, he could actually hear the click as he felt the pain jolt up in him. It was very like one of Click's little click words. And so it began to seem to Loon that Click had taken over from bad leg and from Crouch and had now settled in their place. Click had moved into him to protest the bad treatment he had received from his comrades after his death, or perhaps to help him along. Step by step, Click clicked in him, which is interesting that that here he follows this like associational logic, um, right? The sound of the click is Click's sound also. And like so much of what makes, um, you know, so much of why Click is alien to them is because he makes sounds instead of words, right? Mm -hmm. And like that, that, you know, that's where he ends up kind of like clicking away. But here, you know, Loon has this sort of like ambivalence about it, right? Click might be inhabiting the leg actually to kind of keep him going in that way that Click is the sound of like being able to keep clicking over or moving forward. Um, or maybe Click is there because he's upset, right? Um, you know, either way, like there's an uneasy ghost and it seems like that an uneasy ghost is harder to interpret than you would, is not as, you know, like your interpretation of it may be different than what it is that the ghost wants, right? Well, and also the, <laughs> your interpretation at this moment may be wrong in light of what happens later. So there's a kind of yeah. teleological element to it where it's like, I don't know how to read this yet, but depending on how things turn out, I'll know what it meant later on in a way, maybe. But yeah. like in the first time that Click appears to Loon on 353, mm. I don't remember what happened, so I'm just going to read it. In the first graying of the eastern sky, Loon woke to find himself next to the embers pressed back into Thorn. Uh, this is where they're like rotating around the fire, like in their, like their spoon, their th three of them are spooning each other next to the fire and they have to start rotating because it's so cold. Some movement across the fire caused him to lift his head. It was click. 
he was standing on his knees because of course, Thorne had removed and cooked his shanks. On Click's face, there was an expression Loon couldn't quite understand, some odd mix of pride and longing, disappointment and grief. Loon shaped his lips to say Roop, but he didn't want to speak, so for fear of waking Thorn and Elga. He, re he realized that he was still asleep too, that he was dreaming. He mouthed the shapes of the words and spoke them in the dream. Thank you. And put his head uh, back down and closed his eyes, thinking, now Click's spirit will keep watch over us for the rest of the night, although only a spirit would be out on such a cold night, so nothing would challenge him. Um, so it, it, initially, it, he appears in a dream to him, which he knows is a dream, and then he um, seems to be given the feeling, like in a in that moment of dreaming and that dream logic and that kind of half asleep, half awake. Um, he's not really cognizing or in doing any interpretation. He just sort of feels the meaning of it as he's watching over us, he's guarding us. Um, and I have thanked him, I feel gratitude toward him. So that kind of, that has a more easy feeling than um, finding click in your, in your broken clicking leg uh, or like locating him there because that, yeah, that click, cause it ends up being that bad leg actually is the only leg that can save them by the end because paradoxically it's been rested more than the right, other right. ones even though it's like <laughs> completely fucked up um but in any event like that there's yeah anyway there's a kind of like i don't know how willful does can your interpretation be of signs and signifiers in order to give you the feeling or the kind of ultimate you know place that you need to be in to continue going on or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's a really great, um, like, um, uh, I, I think, it, I think that this sort of like the presence of click, even the presence of click to thorn, um, just is, it is ambiguous, you know, um, and we've kind of seen that already when um, spirits come um that those are um those are kinds of contacts that are not simple or easy to read and that maybe you produce you produce an interpretation of it but like you know like when uh um uh when loon's father shows up um uh it's just not clear what's what's happening there like so so it's not like the spirit comes like, you know, it's not like the like ghosts in a, um, a Christmas carol and they're like, they I am you. here, I am here to teach you a lesson about how to be a better bourgeois person, you know, like, uh, instead, like there is this kind of fundamental ambiguity, there is this kind of open endedness, I think, generally to like spirit life, you know, and, and, and as and along with a kind of like general like sense of mystery, right? The ongoing way in which, you know, there there are things in the natural world that are not within, um, you know, not within human capacity to like understand, you know, like understanding here is not about like being able to master, right? You, there's the kind of ongoing relation to the natural world that has a sort of mystery to it. And I think that includes like the presence of, um, the presence of spirits, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I feel like we're really left not knowing, but like, we definitely know that like, 
nobody, with the possible exception of Elga, who we don't really hear from, like right. nobody is at ease with what has happened. Right. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, and we're, and I was going to say too, the Gen Day as well participate in this with their, they scare the puffins off and then they read the puffins for signs of what the next year is going to bring. So, um, and of course we don't know what their interpretation is, but yeah, that fundamental sense of ambivalence, ambiguity, but, but always the, the invitation to interpret, right. Always the invitation to make meaning out of these things. Um, and, and sort of use them as, you know, guideposts in terms of your future decision-making, depending on how you interpret them or not. Um, and we have that great scene of, um, uh, on 351 when, um, uh, Thorn, Thorn uses the, um, uses sticks to figure out like, um, uh, where they are relative to the camp. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, he says, we're lucky I know that because there's no way of telling whether you're east or west of a place, only north or south. Old Pika taught me the trick. He said his raven taught it to him and he was the first human to know it. He was always saying that, but I never heard any other shaman talk about this trick at the 8-8 or anywhere else. Um, you know, it, it's this great moment of like taking back a little bit of like after, at the end of this like incredibly intense journey in which they you know, have like come extremely close to death and basically entered into, like, I think you were saying a mode that is just a survival mode. Mm -hmm. And it's a survival mode so extreme that they're willing to like eat somebody else like, right. to get there, um, to stay alive. Um, but at the same time, like this, like, you know, that sort of uh, curiosity and desire for knowledge and like, um, you know, the making the map of where you are, like that comes out again, even at the end. I mean, they're like starving at this point, you know, um, but like, it's worth, it's worth it to like, do this little like moment of figuring something out and be like, that's right. I don't know if other people know how to do this thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they, and, you know, he decides they have to, well, she, Elga helps to, in the interpretation of that, realizing like, well, if we were in the east of the camp, then we'd be in these mountains and we're not there. So we have to be west. And Thorne's like, yes, that's right. Yeah. So they have to continue going east and that's against the grain of the land, which is unfortunate, but they have, they do what they, but they do what they can, but then uh, eventually they make it. And this whole chapter is just so grueling. <laughs> to yeah. read because you're just like my god what what more could stan be putting these people through he's just so mean to them <laughs> um but eventually they finally make it and they are really like you know down to the bone skeletons their eyes are sunken their belly buttons are touching the the their their uh spines um uh 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 thorn can thorn looks more and more like a snake um yeah. <laughs> which is a horrifying description um but eventually they start, he starts to recognize things. Loon sees um, a drawing that he did, uh, you know, the previous year or years. Um, and then suddenly just Heather appears and it's such a relief. Yeah. Yeah. Heather and their, uh, their little uh, baby. Yeah. Lucky. Lucky or luck. I think the baby's name is Lucky, right? I think it's Lucky. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, because that, that's what Heather says. I think that comes from Heather says, oh. you're one lucky boy. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, they make it back and there's Heather. Mm-hmm. And then like, um, even uh, the unspeakable one is here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's such an intense chapter and it really is. And it's also all because it's all in the ice and snow. Um, uh, um, uh, in the like, um, and then they like return right to the meadow to a warmer, to a somewhat warmer place, right? right. Um, to trees. Uh, so like from, and so from the sort of like world of the black and white, I mean, it really has been kind of like this dream world that they've been in back into like reality, everyday life, home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and the next chapter being all the worlds meet. Um, yeah, it, it reinforces that sense of like being in a completely different, in a different world. Um, that that journey propels you into kind of a, yeah, outside of, you know, into the alien, essentially. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And it is interesting that the sort of, um, uh, we get the reference to like Elga as the swan wife. Right. And do we see that story told anywhere in here? I thought we did. Um, earlier on, maybe I thought it was earlier. I thought this didn't didn't Loon tell it in a very specific way, where he sort of cast Thorn as the as a kind of per, uh, character in it or something. I can't I can't remember, but that you know, like um, just like thinking that the um, when I said this before, but like when Loon is watching her pull him and watching her move through the snow and he has the revelation that she must be from somewhere in the north right um uh you know so that in fact like she has kind of is sort of like fleeing what is supposed to be like her natural her natural territory her home turf right Mm -hmm. to live in this other place I don't think a lot happens with that. I think more could happen with that aspect of this, right? But we have the sense of like, um, you know, everybody has returned, right? But Thorn and Loon have returned to the place that they're from, right? And the pack and like the home ground. And she's returned to something else, to something different. I mean, to her child and Mm -hmm. to like, but also to like a, a place and like a mode of living that she chose like not where she was born you know i don't know i think there's something interesting about that i do wish that like we had more i wish that we like learned more about her um you know that she that we had yeah that it was like less of a sort of like sketch of her because i think that you know the association of her as somebody who has moved around and then like sort of picked a place yeah, um, and that kind of interesting association then, like with the other wanderer characters yeah. that we see, is really intriguing to me. When she also has that moment where she is getting to know the women in the camp, and sort of that one one of the very few moments where we actually see her experience more or less firsthand, and that she is 
very much doing like a calculation in terms of this person's powerful, but nobody likes her. Um, and she's just trying to f not only fit in, but actually lay the seeds for becoming more dominant in the yeah. group, um, which I think is fascinating, um, especially in relation to who she is as a character, having come right. from this other place and not wanting to have to experience what she's experienced again. So how do you protect against that? You become integral to the group, to the new group, um, and integral to the new group in such a way that they um, that they don't take you for granted, but they actually exert some amount of power uh, over the group in a right, way. Right. Yeah, I know it's it's a weird, I find that bit a little odd because it's like, we really don't know what her motive would be for like, I mean, for wanting to be able to stay, yes. For wanting to like have some kind of power power that seems like a little bit less clear to me I was also thinking that we don't know um like even like sort of what to assume about what her experience is in the captivity period you know like is she kept with other women who are all also captives we know that there are women there in the main house um but then also she's in the women's house so like, is she, to what extent is she part of the group? Like, we don't know whether like they, you know, we don't know whether the women who are taken captive are how they're used, like what kind of work they do, like whether they're expected to like be available for sex, like whether they are supposed to be reproducing. Like we have no idea like what it is that she is fleeing from, right? You know, unless we want to just go with the like, oh, she just like, she really loves Loon, so she wants to get back there with Loon. I mean, maybe that's what it is, right? But, but in the next chapter, we get like, they return to the 8-8 and she has this showdown with them right. where the two tribes are, the wolf pack and the Jende are, you know, angrily negotiating, you know, or nearly fighting. And she steps in and is like, I don't remember because we haven't read it yet for this, but she basically steps in and look, says, look, these guys are assholes. I was treated badly. I don't want to be with them anymore. Um, and kind of lays out a little bit more kind of what her experience was. So I think we have to wait until next time to find that out. But even yeah. then, I don't think it's that, you know, it's not like a chapter on it. It's, it's, she, she does a kind of song performance type of oration, I guess. I guess I think that I think it's interesting that she's this kind of figure of individuality in a way that like Loon isn't exactly because she is pack plus um, uh, and that that gets associated also with her wanting to have some control over where she lives, um, which is not a thing that like most people that we see think about. You know, even right. even later, like when we get some sense that like the wolf pack might break up, that's not really about like making a choice to like be able to go and like live wherever you want to live, right? Right. So, so it's I don't know. There's more. There's more to like what we might think about her than I think we exactly. Yeah. Than we get. Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, I would like to have more, but it all and it also puts her in a position of an object to be interpreted. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, whereas you know. Um, we get uh, less of that from Loon. Yeah. 
Well, now your your cat is uh, bothering you, so that is signals the end of the episode. She's between she's between me and the microphone. The microphone, right. her, her round her round centrist, cent, center section is pressed up against the mic. <laughs> she's rubbing her tail on your face, so that means that typically signals the the end of the episode. Um, <laughs> We always keeps the time. <laughs> we should mention, we should have mentioned at the beginning, but I was just too excited to get into the conversation about the book that the seminary cooperative bookstore in the universe, uh, uh, in uh, Hyde Park, in uh, the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, That's just right. adjacent to the University of Chicago, uh, uh, the the de facto and, de, and pretty well de facto bookstore of the University of Chicago has featured the podcast Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary in its... Website. Uh, we were asked to give some book recommendations about what e- ecology and science and socialism. Yeah. I guess for like for for Earth Earth Week, Earth, Earth Month, Week, Earth Month, whatever it is that we're whatever the Earth term the, the one the one time of year when the Earth matters. Finally, <laughs> um, it was very fun to pick uh, pick titles um, and. Matt was good and wrote descriptions of the ones that um, he picked, and I did not manage to do that. Um, I'm, I'm, you're, you're busier than I am. I am. That maybe is true. Um, but uh, it was really nice to do something with the Sam Coop, former employee of both, of employer of both right. Matt and Hillary. <laughs> yes, great place to work. Um, did you, you worked for them obviously when they were in the basement? Of- yes. Yes, like when I How was, was it, what was that like? I I worked in the summer and one of my memories so it was un AC there's air conditioning only in like maybe theology there's just like one section of the bookstore where yeah. the air conditioning actually got in um and because like my I don't know like maybe my third day on the job I was got put on the register and um, I completely fucked up a transaction that involved traveler's checks. I still remember this, um, that like, I don't, whatever, like I did not understand and nobody, I still feel like this was a little unfair because nobody was really helping me, but also I, I screwed something up. And then the guy who was like the manager at the time was basically just like, uh, every day he'd be like, well, you'll be shelving today. <laughs> really not a good employee um and i was always trying to shelve like in theology or whatever that section was where the air conditioning was and then when i would be done my shift like leaving that basement and like coming out into the light i I remember that very clearly of just like oh my god it's actually like there is a sun yeah i really love that old basement Um, it was great i love I, i i i it was really fun to shop for books down there. It's still fun to shop at the seminary co-op. Yeah. You should go if you are ever in Chicago and if they're ever accepting customers uh, in person again. Because oh um, it is still an adventure to go into that bookstore and just hunt around the, the, the stacks and the labyrinth of books that they've oh, yeah. set up. And it's a very pleasant experience because there's a lot of windows and sunlight and also the staff are lovely. Uh, the staff are amazing. Brilliant people. Yeah, the staff um, are incredible, brilliant people. Yeah, and the new space is beautiful and yet they did manage to allow, like the way that the book stacks are, it still gives you some of that sense of like wandering around and being like, oh my God. Uh, but if you've never, 
never, but, but yeah, but yeah, you, you know, new visitors will never have the experience of going into that basement no. area again. Mm -hmm. And that is, a, that is a tragedy because that was just very exciting. It was held together with just spit and twine and yeah. Oh um, yeah. Uh, you went down very creaky, creaky stairs. And, and like, yeah, um, you had to check your bag at the front desk. Mm -hmm. And it was also in the winter when the heating was on, it was so humid down there too. Yeah. Um, that you really wondered how the books even like survived, but it yeah. was, it's such an adventure. So much fun. I still really, uh, I still compulsively when I am shelving my own books, like line them up with the front of the shelf. Yeah. So that, like all of the spines are um, all the way at the front. Just learned it, learned it in the bookstore. Didn't, <laughs> never lost that. <laughs> um, uh, they, do, they do a decent mail order business too. So I don't know. People, yes. People, you people can who are looking for new books, you know, might consider ordering from Simcoop. Definitely order from the seminary co-op. Um, we'll put the link in our show notes today. Um, and oddly enough, well, no, actually you put Aurora on the list. Um, I put Aurora. We, for yeah. whatever reason, we didn't put ministry for the future on the list, but it's implied. Um, yeah. yes. um, <laughs> okay. So um, thanks for listening. Um, and next week we'll maybe Maybe we'll finish the book or maybe we'll just do one of the chapters, but yeah, we'll have to think about that. We'll have to think about it. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening. That's all. Yeah. Thank, thank you for listening. And um, you can follow us on Twitter or sure. email I wasn't us. even going to say it, but follow us on Twitter at podcast on Mars, email us at marooned on Mars podcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, we would really, uh, we'd enjoy to hear from you. Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks everybody. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.